When Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance was discovered below the Arctic ice in March 2022, 106 years after it sank, the world thrilled anew with one of the greatest survival stories of all time. Acclaimed South African writer Daryl Bristow-Bowie has a deeply personal relationship with the story of endurance. And in this lyrical journey into the past and the present, into humanity and the natural world, above and below the Arctic ice, he revisits the famous story, wondering why it seems to mean more today than ever before. Drawing on literature, natural history, personal memoir, and the thrilling epics of polar adventure, this is a celebration of the human spirit. If this story tells us anything, it's that in the face of self-inflicted natural disaster, we can still pull off a miracle or two. Daryl sat down with South African author Mputumi Tabeni at the Book Lounge in Cape Town to delve into one of the greatest stories of all time. Enjoy this episode of PageCast. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mputumi Tabeni, a writer based in Cape Town and in the Eastern Cape mostly. We are coming today from not so wintry morning in Cape Town. We are all in uh, t-shirts. You would think it's it's summer, <laughs> but that is Cape Town for you. We are coming from the book lunch, which is becoming our stable home now. As we talk, there might be sounds on the background. Just bear in mind that life goes on. It's not waiting for us. So please excuse us if that happens. Some of the stranger sounds will be me. <laughs> this morning, I am interviewing the wonderful Daryl Bristow Bovey. And we are talking about his recent book, Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father, and a World Without End. Daryl, I am sure to most South Africans, is a familiar writer, but he is a prize-winning screenwriter and a travel writer, and a newspaper and magazine columnist. He's the author of six books which have been translated into seven languages, including Spanish, Estonia, and Portuguese. He was born in South Africa, studied under J.M. Kutsi and Andre Brink, and currently divides his time between Cape Town, the UK, and the hillsides on the great Peneloponese. Oh, don't we wish all. Mm -hmm. His fascination with endurance expedition began as a small boy when his father first told him that he had been south with Shackleton. He still believes him. Welcome home, Dara. Thank you. And I'm, I'm particularly grateful to be here because the last time we were just saying, the last time I spoke to you, I was interviewing you about your book, which is one of my, Broken Hearted River, which is one of my favorite books of the last, South African books of the last uh, several years. And uh, everyone should be reading that as well. But back to me. Yeah, back to you. Thank you very much. And congratulations on this wonderful written book. Uh, guys, this is not just a book, but it's a shared festival of self-exploration and the exploration of nature. What it reminds me, it reminded me of mostly, it's written in a, in, in a way that uh, the ancient historian Herodotus wrote his history, which is that it blurs sometimes uh, historical facts, geography, known facts, and all those things with personal memoir exploration, and sometimes even myths. Mm. And uh, as we know, Dara, 
you you say that your your interest uh, on on the endurance was first sparked by your father mm. when he he claimed that he had met he had met uh, Shackleton. It's so lovely when I read this book because uh, it's almost you yourself, right, from that invented memory of your father, and all those things. And then it must have been a wonderful thing for you when in 2022 the South African Agalas too found the remains of the of the ship. Uh, the, the ship sank in 1916, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, around about then. And then uh, under the captains of uh, Mafamati Knowledge Bengu, and then they found it there. Were you already writing the manuscript or did you, uh, in fits and bounds, or did you, you think that, let me go back to what my father told me about this ship when they found it? Well, it's such a wonderful thing to hear you uh, uh, compare the book to Herodotus, because Herodotus is one of my favorites, you know, writers, and and I have long associated him with my father. You know, Herodotus is called the father of history and also the father of lies, because he was, <laughs> in some ways, the first storyteller. And for him, as with my father, uh, the story was the more important part uh, of the exercise, the factual details were somewhat less important, which I think is a very sound approach to storytelling. Because, you know, really all our lives are is is the set of stories that we, we hear and, and tell about ourselves. So no, I hadn't started reading, I hadn't started writing the book before Endurance was brought up, but it, it, it wasn't brought up, it was discovered. It was the discovery of Endurance that was this kind of ray of sunlight that came out of a cloudy sky and sort of illuminated the sea and me. And the joy that I felt, just the strange and almost inexplicable delight that I found when these images were broadcast to our, our screens from the bottom of the Weddell Sea, showing the ship, the wooden ship of the Endurance still intact, the star on her stern still shining and glimmering in the torchlight. The weird delight and joy that I felt, and that so many other people seemed to feel at the same time, was what triggered me into thinking about the Shackleton story again, and thinking about my father, and, and, and thinking about what the story of Shackleton tells us, what it said then and what it tells us now. Because stories, I mean, you know, as you know, stories change all the time. They change depending on, on who we are when we first hear them and they change depending on on what the world is like when they get retold again and so that's what sort of got me to sit down and start wanting to write about Shackleton and my father and the world and one of my first fears was that well there's been so much about Shackleton that has been written you know, there's so many books is there anything new to say and I realized yes everything everything uh, was new to say about it. Actually, that's what I wanted to ask you about. The book clearly is comprehensively researched, and uh, you even at the end put all the, the bibliography mm. that you, you had uh, conducted. But still, when I was looking at the blogs and all those things, it amazes me that you were even able to find something original to say, because this is a very original book. And I, I think uh, perhaps where you, you got it right was to write it uh, in a personal point of view kind of thing. And then, and so it uh, merges as a personal memoir in a sense. Of course, the use of uh, informed imagination whenever the facts uh, are, are not there. It's a wonderful way of writing a book. And uh, 
When I say invented memory, there's a difference between an invented memory and lies and informed imagination because、mm. you first know the facts because you before you can play around with them, which is what for me real historical fiction should be about. But I mean, having said that, how long did it take you to research and write? Well, it took me thirty-five years. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading about Jacobson and polar exploration for for many, many years. The targeted research and writing was considerably shorter,、mm. considering that the ship was found in March last year. And、um, thank you for what you say there. I hadn't thought of putting it as clearly as that. One of the main things about the Shackleton story that has always sort of fascinated me was was to try to imagine, which I don't get from normal history books, is to try and imagine what it was actually like to be there. If it were me, because a lot of these these were not hardened polar explorers for the most part. Some of them were scientists. Some of them were just you know ship's crew. Some of them were were just random people that that Shackleton met and invited along. So the thought of how I would have I would have experienced this and reacted reacted to this crisis and reacted to this weird new world was a very animating part of you know, the historical thread of the book to try and picture exactly what it would look like, what it would feel like, what the sun glinting off the ice might cause me to feel, and so I. I wanted the historical voice of the book to talk to the the more memoir thread and for, and for the two of them to to inform each other. I understand this journey into my father's life and my mother's life through the story of Shackleton. Together, the two of them to think about you know other other issues of how societies and how the world. Can survive and endure in, in 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 the face of the challenges that are, are presented to it. So that intermingling of the factual, the research, the lived, and the imagined is very important to me, and it's a very important part of the book.、Thank、yes,、you. yes, and it comes out very well. You you have done a very good job. Another thing I enjoyed about it is your comparison between Shackleton and Scott,、mm. and then you you become、uh, you kind of、uh, compare the 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 philosophical stand views of、mm. the two men.、Uh, the other one is pessimist, the other one is optimist, and then again in a wonderful、uh, almost unseen way you interleaver that into your father,、mm. how he looked into life and how his. Outlook into life, and most poignant perhaps is it's when you you feel that、uh, you also somehow have let have let down your mother by、uh, concentrating too much on your absent father.、Mm. That that resonated very well with me because also I I was raised by a single mom,、mm. and then there was always this gap about the absent fathers.、Mm. And the, unfortunately, the absent fathers tend to get all the glory because they are perfect、yes. because they are absent.、Yes. You, you you understand. And then what I like about the book, and most of the time people they say when you write, you as a writer you must always、uh, be invisible. But you impose yourself, and I like that in, into the story of endurance, your family story, and this is how also it, it, the book for me invokes a、uh, Montaigne that use of a、uh, ordinary expression for everyday outlook and life. I think you,、uh, when I read you, I think you are、uh, your outlook in life is skepticism, but then sometimes I feel that you、uh, you kind of overlapped into. Nihilism, also. Please defend yourself. <laughs> Somewhere between skepticism and nihilism. God,、yeah. 
<laughs> no, no, but I am I am the great optimist. I am, oh. Well, I think. Look, that goes to part of the, the debate, right? So Scott is, is in some ways seen um, as, as a pessimist and Shackleton is the great optimist because Shackleton kept going. He never gave up hope. You know, he, he managed to bring all of his people home. Uh, Scott, uh, once he'd been defeated in the race to the poll, the, the wisdom of it is that he uh, you know, he was brokenhearted by defeat. He he'd lost a finite game, and so he he didn't have the the wherewithal to bring his men back home. And it's a kind of a debate between you know positive thinking and and despair, defeatism that that kind of frames the conversations we have in the world today about, for instance, climate change and the two poles. In our modern world, everything's polarized, and it's polarized to to ridiculous extremes where I don't think real people actually actually um, inhabit. But the two extremes are: one is the you know, denialism; everything is going to be fine. All of this is nonsense; everything's going to be fine. And the other is: it's too late; we're destroyed; the world is ending, and and the only thing that can save us is by scattering some orange chalk on the tennis courts at Wimbledon, <laughs> right? And that that is. Presented as this, you know, the, the 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 conversation between optimism and 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 pessimism, but I don't think it it is at all. I don't think optimism fits into either of those poles. The optimism that Shackleton embodied, and really the only kind of sensible life philosophy that's available to any of us, is the thought that human agency matters got ourselves into this position, whatever trouble we're in, and so we can get ourselves out of it. And that doing something is better than being sad and not doing anything. Mm. And that even if what we're doing isn't going to take us to the final destination, uh, to to success in some sort of traditional way. I mean, Shackleton himself went on completely the wrong tangent half the time. He made some terrible decisions on the ice. Mm. But what he did the whole time was he brought his people together. He created a community and he made them do something that they would carry on the best thing he could think of that they would carry on doing until he could think of something better, mm. which f kind of feels like the best possible model for living a life or the best possible model for addressing something like a climate emergency or a, you know, a, a, a political crisis. Mm. And so <clears throat> that's the kind of uh, – so nihilism, no. no <laughs> that's the kind of optimism I like to think um, I try to, to embody, which is um, – a realistic appraisal of the fact that things aren't great, that they won't necessarily by themselves get better, but that there's always sort of something you can do. And even if what you do doesn't help, it's better than not doing anything. Yes. Yes, I know. Uh, by the way, I was provoking you. <laughs> You're a provocative I'm, man. I'm glad, I'm glad that I, I managed to take to bring this out of you. But then, I mean, I, I agree with you and I understand what you say. And you put it very well by using the metaphor of Peter Pan on the on, mm. the, on, the, on, on the book. You mentioned Elon Musk, uh, the, the tendency, which I think almost all these tech billionaires are. Though they have uh, the ability and the resources to tackle the, the the challenges of the climate change, all they are thinking about is going to Mars when they they yeah they should hit the fan. Well, sorry to say, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Elon Musk is the figure of Peter Pan, right? He's yeah. a, a self-described optimistic uh, person who whose whose who, optimism takes the form of wanting to escape, mm. escape adult responsibility, escape real life, escape the world. 
oh, we'll be fine. We'll get on a spaceship and go to go to Mars. Scott's in his tent. Uh, one of the last letters when he was freezing to death on the polar uh, plateau. One of his last letters was to J.M. Barry, the author of, of Peter Pan. And and part of Scott's enduring appeal was that he froze in this perfect, you know, much like for me, I suppose my father died at, at a at a point that he couldn't disillusion me. You know, mm. he couldn't grow. He, I couldn't grow up and be disillusioned by mm. by him, as we are all just dis- disillusioned by everyone because we are all disillusioning creatures. Mm. And so, you know, my father died when I was ten, so he was frozen in this perfect status of of perfect hero of mm. my life and of his own life. And Scott was as well. You know, he 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 froze in this bloom of youth at this at, at just exactly the same time that all these Edwardian mm. uh, boys were, were going off to to the First World War and were dying in the fields and were frozen in place as these perfect creatures. And the real heroism uh, that I kind of discovered—it's a journey I, I kind of discovered as I was as I was writing through the book—was the heroism not of of um, the grand heroic gesture, but of in, of enduring, mm. of, of keeping on going, and of being defeated, mm. and of and of failing, and of carrying on trying and, and carrying on doing it. Part of that journey was uh, the realization, because I, which I didn't realize when I started writing it, um, halfway through that my father had been this the, this heroic figure, the, the the most important looming element of my imagination and and sense of self. And I would, I would try to think about these stories that he told me before he died when we were, when we were um, in bed at night and he was telling me stories. And I'd fret that I was forgetting these stories. And if, and, and if I forgot some of them, then uh, I'd be losing bits of him again and then I have to put it together. And it occurred to me as I was writing this that all the way through all of these memories of me in bed and uh, with my dad and thinking about my dad, my mother was there the whole time in the mm. background. You know, mm. and she wasn't in that room with us, and she wasn't telling me these stories. She was working as a, as a teacher in a government school, trying to feed us and and keep a roof over our head. And she and I belong to a sort of a, a waspy tradition of not talking about our feelings mm. at all. And mm. um, I know that. And um, <laughs> and and sort of, uh, I think we, I think I might once have signed a, signed off a letter to you know love Daryl, but like that's that's the closest we've gotten to to using that particular word, not Daryl. So part of the the journey of this book was kind of coming to realize who she was and and actually what I hadn't been seeing the whole time. And she she's read the book, which I was terrified of. I said, oh, no, are we going to have to talk about this? And um, we some things don't change. We don't have to talk about it at all. But, but it's a kind of a gift to me that the book, that the, that act of writing that book and thinking about what heroism is, Sort of brought me back to, brought me to her almost for the first time, and um, and I have a sense that we are, yeah, we have yeah, communicated uh, in some way. Yeah, I was actually about to ask if your mother has read the book, and then uh, in the in the book you portray her as this shy private person, mm. and I was thinking if she wouldn't feel violated by the book. Yeah, I was. All that stuff. I did worry about that, but you know when I, yes, I did worry about that. Um, but when writing a book, you sometimes well, I I always have to forget that anybody's going to read it. I I was concerned. My, my mother was was sent away from home when she was five. She was sent to boarding school when she was five, where she learned 
um, habits of self-concealment and mm. of hiding her emotions and of not expressing her emotions yes. and of wanting to not be a a burden on to people anyone, on people yeah. by her presence, um, mm. which is something weird enough that she's she's passed on on to me. I compensate for that by by being um, sometimes uh, a little loud, you know, loud, a little more brash than I would otherwise be, and 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 probably less likable. She she her mode was to just become invisible, and I did worry that I was making her less invisible. And but uh, yeah, 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 I I, I get it. I felt for you because uh, the book also, as much as you you understand very well that as a, a father, perhaps your father didn't do much, and then mm. the the lasting uh, inheritance or legacy left you with the stories, mm -hmm. and then you you because you yourself are a storyteller, you identify more with that, and you felt mm -hmm. that it was enough, and I can understand how your mother would feel let down by that because she spend nights and days working for you trying to put uh like but i the endurance though because that's the title mm. and the way your 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 father I could see how you associate that in the sense that how your father even beat the cancer mm. without even having to talk about it or having to concentrate too much on it he just like had this attitude of get on with the like with your life mm. and then whatever happens happens yes exactly shakerson famously says in his diary you know when when your mark uh, falls to yes, earth I like that. you have yeah. to you know set a new mark and and start walking towards that and that's what my father embodied he i mean what you're referring to is, is when when my mother was three months pregnant with me she, my father received a diagnosis that he had six months left to live uh, uh, because of, of cancer and uh, and he 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 w didn't really have a, a profession um he had no he was a sort of a traveling salesman and a, uh, a sort of a Petty criminal, I think, in his youth, and 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 um, a sort of a, a handyman, and uh, in, and instead of moping around like Scott did uh, at the South Pole, he he went out and taught himself how to be a welder and um, and and set about earning some small amounts of money to leave behind for my mother. That seems like a kind of a um, a model for for how we can carry on mm. going because he ignored, he didn't ignore, he certainly wasn't ignoring the cancer, but he wasn't being, he, he didn't sink down into it. Mm. And he eventually died 10 years later of something completely different. But I, I mean, I know that he did not ignore it, but I just love how he's just like, yeah. let me get on and try to provide for my wife while yeah. I still have enough strength to do it. Yeah. I really like that instead of just wallowing on, on like, oh no, look at me, I'm sick, yeah. blah, 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 blah. In any case, a few days ago, I tweeted about your book and I, I was like, you know, this book, what it reminds me of, it reminds me of how a blog modisana in Blame on History personalizes history and uh, tells it in a way that even the national history and the, the history, of course, of Sophia Town and all that stuff. And I get a little storm from people. How can you uh, compare blog modisana to that white book? And I'm like, but have you read the book? And of course, most of them haven't, hadn't even read the book. So yeah, that's the nature of South Africa. I, I understand 
understand that. But I love how you, you because it, it, it is what I aspire to. I'm not a historian, mm-hmm. and but I read a lot of history. Yeah. But I would never write history in a sense that, uh, like just like writing academic facts, I like to personalize history. And this is exactly what you did on this book. Well, thank you. And, and one of the projects that I have, and I think you have too, is to create a slightly wider and more unified field of writing or being a writer in South Africa and of writing for South Africans. And you know, a less siloed and identity restricted. I'm not not merely identity, but but um, the idea that disciplines can't over, overlap and that identities can't overlap and and that a thing has to be either this or that or or something else. What I like most about this book is that it c- comes closest to the sort of book I like to read, which is a book that is not easily. Uh, categorizable and that 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 overflows its boundaries into places that perhaps it shouldn't or that people think it shouldn't um but but which make for a i think a a richer experience you know somebody should write um a a biography of some sort or of bloke modisani i I feel like that's a book that this country needs (laughs) what we need is somebody somebody to be working on that right now yeah well uh, you you probably heard it first, yeah, because I'm almost done with the first with you the are? first uh, draft of that, and then this is why I for me I could associate your book to that. Well, this but- is a, this is a, a, happy, a happy and perfect match of, of right hand subjects. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Which is why it was so easy for me uh, reading your book. I just like uh, these days it's difficult for me to read books because the first chapters capture you, capture you, and then somewhere in the middle the book flops, and then I was like, I'm always struggling. And I I read yours in three days. I oh, couldn't put you. it down. You understand? So it it is very readable. So people they they will think just because you talk a lot about uh, the polar. Uh, mm. history, I mean uh, Antarctic history and natural science geography and all those things they would think it's unaccessible. No, it's written it's beautiful, accessible language and sometimes when it wafts it wafts poetically very well when you talk about ice, mm. man I like that when mm. you talk about ice. But anyway before, um, uh, please prepare yourself, I'm going to ask you to read us a passage before Yikes. we move on but I want to close this this chapter by laboring this point a little bit why then do you uh, identify yourself with orderlies? Because on the on on the book you make him into a pessimist, mm. and then you 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 say, of course, he's an inveterate gossip and all that stuff. But as opposed to your mm. tireless optimist, which is Shackleton <laughs> and Frank Wilde, tireless optimist—that's <laughs> me. I'm a tireless optimist. You know, so 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 you're you you're asking about Thomas Ordlees, who yeah, was yeah. uh, who was a one of the the sailors uh, aboard the Endurance. He was a, an extremely eccentric character. He, one of the things I most identify about um, in myself in him, is that he thought he was very popular and friendly and 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 a nice chap, and uh, was seemed to be completely unaware that he was annoying everybody around him, and that 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 everybody secretly <laughs> disliked him. Um, but but Shackleton chose him as a kind of scapegoat. He didn't mm. want people to be pessimistic. Um, that was the thing that he feared most. Mm. And so he he scapegoated Thomas Audley's as a pessimist because Audley's was in charge of the of the rations of the food, and he knew that the polar winter was coming, and he was trying to persuade Shackleton to reduce the rations. And Shackleton knew that that was a wise and sensible thing to do. 
but he also knew that mor- keeping men's morale up was almost more important than than keeping the physical strength up because um, you know previous expeditions to the South Pole, people had gone mad uh, long before they'd starved to death. And it turned on each other. So, so Shackleton insisted on keeping the food rations high so as to, to not give the impression that they were going to be there for a long period of time, even though he knew that they were certainly going to be there for another year. And the more Audleys would say, oh, we've only got so many you know, penguins left. We've only got so many seals left. Uh, we need to preserve them uh, in, in case they don't come back again um, uh, early enough next spring. Uh, and the more Shackleton saw people getting edgy about this, the more he would scapegoat Audley's and say, "Oh, you're a pessimist. <laughs> oh, you, you know." And and he knew he'd made the assessment that Audley's could his his personality could survive this kind of scapegoating. Um, so it you know, it was one more example of of, of the shrewdness of Shackleton's management style. But Audley's himself was this great enthusiast and and a, a great bungler, and he was forever getting lost in the uh, on the on the, on the on the ice and falling into the sea and having to be dried out and and uh, and losing his food and spilling his meal, and yet completely oblivious of the fact that everybody uh, thought thought he was a he was a fool. And and so I think. You know, I always try to project myself into onto the ice uh, or into these situations and, and wonder who I would be. Would I be the hero? Would I be the person <laughs> everybody looks up to? You, when you're young, you like you, you can think of yourself as James Bond, but I, w- I wouldn't be James Bond. No. <laughs> I'd be I wouldn't be Shackleton. I'd be this 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 bungler, Thomas Audley's trying his best uh, and and getting it wrong all the time and and being perpetually puzzled why people are are insulting him. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of the things I love about this book: your your frankness and uh, your sense of uh, insight into your own personality. <laughs> it's so honest and uh, authentic. Yeah, Could you, you read for us a passage, please? Well, this is an exciting uh, and an intimidating thing because <laughs> I've been complaining recently about uh, the audiobook which is read by an English actor, and I listened to it, and I couldn't listen to it anymore. So I was, what ri- the rhythm he's reading <laughs> in? That's not the way it's, it's written. <laughs> it's, I have a perfect rhythm for the words in my head. Now, can I, can I read that aloud? I probably can't. So this is uh, from the beginning of Chapter 20, The End of the World. We all suffer loss. We all ache for something that was taken that can't be had back. And so relatively recently, part of the imaginative appeal of Antarctica was the idea that in a world of loss, it's unchanging, and that time there, if it exists at all, is deep and geologic. There's enchantment in that thought, and there's also some science. A core sample drawn from deep in the East Antarctic ice shelf glitters with compressed silvery bubbles of million-year-old air, preserved because the snows that fall on the continent don't melt but accumulate, each layer compressing the one below it to form something called fern, made of compacted snow and ash and atmospheric particles of air. With each year's snowfall, the fern is pressed and squeezed and frozen until it becomes glacial ice. Melt that ice, and you can inhale an inconceivable past, a time so long ago it's a different place. Nothing decays in the Antarctic. And because it's not a human place, there's no human sense of things passing. It feels like there's no heat, so there's the illusion of no time. 
You can go to McMurdo Sound tomorrow to Hut Point and Cape Roids and see the hut that Scott built or the hut where Shackleton stayed. You can curl up and take a nap, as Sarah Wheeler does at the end of Terra Incognita, on Scott's own bunk. Until the last few decades, the Antarctic presented itself to the imagination as a place where the river of time doesn't flow, but freezes over, and is never subtracted from, but only added to. Thank you very much, Darren. That was Darrell, a reading from his recent book, Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father, and the World Without End. And the way why I like that passage, it for me, it almost uh, captures the whole of what is con- uh, contained in the book. It's almost like a, a thesis of, of the book. And uh, I can, when I was reading it, I, I could feel the spirit of... Um, Mephistopheles is heavy on your on your shoulders there <laughs> because uh you you had just uh, talked about the 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 parts that involve uh, your cousin or whatever Roy and the death of your of your aunt and mm-hmm. the disintegration of things including your marriage and mm-hmm. all that stuff and then that sense of loss that comes mm-hmm. from all of that and uh, do do you suppose that uh, the, this this sense of loss and looking for a home that they don't even possess and don't even have language for it is the reason why these Edwardian men went to expeditions? Yes, and that that is the spirit that that kind of haunts the book: the mm, idea of yeah, home, yes, the idea yeah. of going home, yes. and what is home? Because home is never a place. Mm. Yeah, it's it's at best a time, and it's a time when you felt whole. So, so home is always a search for the thing that you've lost, and we've all lost. You know, that's what our life is premised on. It's it's loss. It's the loss of the wholeness you felt as a child, the illusion that things would not change and and would and would be full, and and your parents would be there with you, and 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 all of those those things that that are part of the makeup of of a child. That's the struggle, right? That's the struggle we all have with time it's the knowledge of the impossibility of going back in time that time's error only goes goes forward um and that the search the search the desperate longing yearning search for a way of bending time's error and and of, and of somehow getting back what was taken from us even if we don't know what it is we're looking for okay. uh you know whether it's whether it's the, the people that we've lost uh, or just the sense of ourselves and the world that we once had and and that gets eroded as we get older and that's 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 in some ways the issue of faith you know it's it's the the the, the various kinds of faith that that's um, that we that we wrestle with and that we search for whether we know that we we're doing that or not that there's there's a kind of a a music of faith, I think, that runs through the book and 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 all of our sort of inchoate yearnings, uh, and um, and yeah, and so yeah, thank you for for, yeah. <laughs> for bringing that out. I haven't yeah. spoken, spoken about that. And uh, and uh, the 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 most uh, uh, perhaps I, I nearly said interesting, but the most poignant thing is that you were writing at the time that we're all. Uh, emerging from the COVID-19 mm-hmm. fog, uh, I mean, of that year 2021, that culling year, mm-hmm. if I might say, because so much, so many of us lost so many of our loved ones, mm-hmm. including myself, because mm-hmm. that's when I lost my mom also. Yeah. So as a, 
uh, as a person at that particular moment myself, I was uh, writing the book of the Wanderers. So this sense of uh, trying to identify what home is, mm-hmm. I was doing that on that book. So I could I could identify mm-hmm. very easily with that when when you wrote that. Um, in any case. I understand that Alfred Lansing was the first to write about the endurance expedition. I haven't read the, the journals of Shackleton, so I don't know. So how does he his version compare to the to Lansing's one? Or do you think he was more interested with competing with Scott than, <laughs> than Lansing? Yeah. Well, um, Shackleton and Scott were competing with each other the whole time, and Scott, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of the things that probably killed Scott because uh, it, we we see in Scott's journals. Uh, on his way to the South Pole and back again, that even though Amundsen had landed on the far side of Antarctica and was racing him to the pole, and he knew that he was racing him, and he knew that he was beating him, he, in his journals, was still comparing himself to Shackleton's previous attempt to go there. And uh, it's, it's one of the great, you know, Antarctica itself is, is constantly throwing up these rivalries and these races. And, and it's one of the great lessons, I think, that that's, we can take from the history of Antarctica is that competition uh, with another person and, and an obsession with winning and losing a finite game that has a winner and a loser is the surest uh, recipe for disaster. And the game that Shackleton played wasn't against Scott, and it wasn't against Amundsen or anybody else. It was, it was what um, the philosopher James Cass calls the the infinite game, mm. a game whose only purpose is to carry on playing uh, yeah. and to carry on enduring, in order to to play it again tomorrow. And that's the the infinite game of life. Thank you for that, uh, yeah, Dara. I understand that Shackleton's. Uh, Captain Frank Walt mm. moved to South Africa in the yes. end, and uh, he, he he bought a, a farm in in KZN. That's right. Yeah, and then he was assisted by Jan Smuts. He was. Assisted. How did he meet me, Jan Smuts? <laughs> <laughs> Jan Smuts admired the men of, of the endurance so much that mm. that when he discovered that 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 Wild was in South Africa trying to become a farmer and was being crippled by droughts and floods. He was absolutely um, astounded that the English government hadn't, wasn't helping them financially and weren't treating them like heroes because they weren't, you know, they were sort of forgotten men when they came back. And so, so Jan Smith gave him a, a personal loan out mm. of his own, own pocket, not, not government, not South African government funds or anything. Mm. And Wilde uh, undertook this strange odyssey through South Africa. He died here. He works as a miner here. He, he, he ran a spaza shop on the West ran for a while and he died in complete obscurity in in Johannesburg and his uh, remains were lost for years and years until oh about six no probably about 10 years ago now that uh, an English journalist hunted them down tracked them down in a in a in the, the vault underneath a, a crematorium and sort of recovered them and and took them to to South Georgia to be buried alongside Shackleton on the island the South Georgia island so there's a strange intertwining of South Africa and South African interest with the story of these strange Englishmen and Irishmen and, and uh, Canadians who, who went to the bottom of the world and managed to come back again. <laughs> Very much uh, interesting. And um, let's talk a little bit before we, as we go towards the end, uh, about McNish. Mm. Can I as he was, um, but do you think he would have started the mutiny had they not killed his cat? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about the the carpenter, Chippy McNish. Oh, yeah, <laughs> had they not made him kill yeah. his cat. <laughs> Chippy McNish kept, carried a, 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 brought on a, the world's, I think, uh, well, certainly the only 
trance character that I've encountered in polar history. The ship's cat called Mrs. Chippy, who turned out to be a male, uh, but who identified by Mrs. Chippy and only came when called as Mrs. Chippy. Uh, Mrs. Chippy was, was, a, was an extremely ill-mannered cat, much like the cantankerous carpenter Chippy McNish himself, and had, <laughs> had tried to abandon ship, uh, before they even got to the ice by jumping overboard and, and was fished out of the, of the ocean. And when the ship was stuck in the ice and everybody was, was um, disembarking to go on the long, the long journey back home again, they had to kill all of the, the animals. They had yeah. to kill the dogs yeah. they, because they hadn't learned how to use them. Um, and, and regrettably, they had to take Mrs. Chippy behind an ice ridge and, and shoot her. Yeah. And and as you say, the mutiny that happened on the ice was started by uh, entirely led by Chippy McNish, and uh, it is it is believed by by many people that that when his cat was was executed, he understood the necessity for it, <laughs> but but something something inside him broke and was damaged and uh, and and came out again when he refused to, to go on sledding. Shackleton quelled the mutiny, and McNish himself died in obscurity uh, years later in, in New Zealand. And it's, it's one of the, the more touching, the more touching after, after notes to the story that um, in recent years, some historians found his grave in a, in a, a small provincial cemetery, wow, in New Zealand. I say provincial, everything in New Zealand is provincial, isn't it? Um, and found his unmarked grave, gave him a headstone and, and a small concrete, um, figure of Mrs. Chippy to, to, to sit <laughs> at, the, at the bottom of his grave. Sure. So, so they united again, uh, uh, and, even, and even the, if a, a, it is in life. New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do say that he, his aggrieved animosity to everything uh, preceded the, the, the expedition. <laughs> um, I will, and in a little bit of a controversy oh. because I want I want to go back to the Peter Pan uh, syndrome. I see. And uh, because when I was reading that, I was thinking, well, this is how South Africans are actually, mm -hmm. and uh, unfortunately, mostly uh, white South Africans when they they have to deal with the failings and mm. the glaring failings mm. of the ANC government. Mm. Instead of uh, coming out with their resources and uh, tackling the, the challenges directly, they choose escapism. Choose escape. But, mm. you know, the, uh, at least Elon Musk is trying to escape to Mars. Uh, <laughs> when South Africans escape to New Zealand and Australia, uh, that's that's a really sad sad thing. Mars, I think, is a, is a far more pleasant and, uh, and welcoming an environment and a lot more fun to live on than in, uh, Australia. Well, Dara, thank you very much for availing yourself for this interview. I have enjoyed it. And uh, good, good luck to you and Joe, as both of you, you trust into your own future. I know at our age, how wonderful at our age and all the experiences to be surprised by joy again at the end. That's uh, C.S. Lewis when you found love at the end. Mm -hmm. So good luck to you. And, and uh, May more books come. Thank you very much. This has been a delight, a delight of a conversation. I'm so, so glad we could do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening. <laughs>